Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to come before you and study your word. God, when we think about you and we think about the infiniteness of your power, and then we ask ourselves, why don't we have access to that power? Why don't we see God's power in the world today? Why is it that when we read the Bible, we see these acts and these wonders, but yet in the world that we live in today, why don't we see your supernatural intervention? Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us wisdom, you would guide us. And Lord, for this morning, uh, for those here that perhaps may feel um, distant from you, perhaps may feel uh, dejected, rejected by you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that they would renew their sense of relationship with you and who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. And yes, after this sermon this morning, we'll watch the rest of The Lord of the Rings. Sorry about the uh, volume there. Sometimes when I edit videos, I have to play with the levels a little bit, so apologies for that. We're going to continue on a series we started a few weeks back now called Enchanted. And the whole idea behind the series was is that we want to talk about what it means to encounter God. So remember I said to you that the series starts off with kind of the idea of a fairy tale. Right? In a fairy tale, you have somebody going along their normal life, and then one day they encounter something, a dragon, a fairy godmother, or something supernatural, something otherworldly, and it changes the trajectory of their lives. Well, the premise of this series is, is that should actually be the story that we have with God as well. Let's recap what we talked about a couple of weeks back now, since uh, it's been two weeks since we've been together. The last time we uh, came together, we've been asking questions about the miraculous, uh, about all these things. And the question we're going to ask, we asked two weeks ago was, does the miraculous create faith? See, one of the things that's interesting to me is that when people say to me, oh, if you could just prove God exists. And of course, the question is, well, what proof do you need? Well, if God would do this, or if God would do that, or if I rub this lamp, or if I, you know, do the hokey pokey and turn myself around, and if God does something, then I will believe. But the fact is, I don't think that's true, actually. Because whatever God does do, whatever God, however God does intervene, we have a way of rationalizing that away. And so if you could think back, perhaps, and again, this is the assumption that you uh, perhaps have asked God for something in the past, but if you've asked for uh, intervention, direction, something from God, and he's answered it, and now that may seem distant. And so you say to yourself, well, yeah, that may have been true, or that perhaps was true, but, you know, maybe it was just, you know, coincidence or circumstance or, or things like that. And so the question we were asking ourselves, does the miraculous create faith? We started off our journey looking at Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Remember when Jesus kind of says to the people, like, look at all that I've done. Does this not prove to you who I am? And, and the fact was, and as we saw, as we kind of walked through this passage of scripture, it didn't. Like, like what was amazing, what's amazing to me is that, you know, in, in churches today, in, in Christianity today, and again, I don't want to be too, I don't want to be too dismissive, but like, you know, if, you know, somebody has their big toe healed or if somebody has something happen, you know, it's like, oh, we, we make such a big deal of it. Jesus was bringing people back to life who were dead. He was casting out demons. Like his demons stand up and would shriek and the entire place would be electrified and he would call it out. Like he would do the most incredible things and people are like, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I've seen somebody do some pretty big things as well, too. It's like, really? Okay. So what Jesus says is that, like, you know, it, it's one of those things where, like, people would have repented. People should believe because of this. And we use this as a springboard to uh, jump back into Exodus chapter 7. And uh, 
we looked at the uh, at the Pharaoh of Egypt and the Ten Commandments and the Ten Plagues and all this type of thing, right? And so we looked at the Pharaoh and we saw that how the Pharaoh had this opportunity to believe in Yahweh. And again, as far as the miraculous goes, the Ten Plagues are like, like they're the top. Like nothing in the Bible will ever outdo that. Like, 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 like uh, darkness and, and, and frogs and gnats. And remember we looked at the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, and we looked at the, the staffs becoming snakes. And I showed you, you know, where that origin comes from. And I said to you, like, when you talk about, so Moses comes before Pharaoh and he wants to introduce Yahweh to the Egyptian culture. They have no context who this Jewish God is. And what, is, what does God say to Moses? Throw down your staff and it'll become a snake. And that'll prove to Pharaoh that I'm God. And you're kind of like, that's what you want me to do? Like, why not something else? Why not like, you know, a big floating head in the throne room? Or how about we just topple the pyramids or, or something like that? That'd be even cooler, right? But what we saw was that the magicians had a way of taking a snake and making it a staff as well. Uh, sorry, making a staff into a snake as well, right? And so it's kind of God starting off at a very simple one, but then he just escalates. Remember the magicians could do the first two. They could mimic the first two plagues. But after number three, they're, like, they're tapping. They're like, okay, we got nothing. Right? But then God continues to grow and grow. And every time, each plague, when you, if you think about this, each plague is kind of like, like God ups the ante. And it's almost as if he's asking Pharaoh, what do you need to believe in me now? Like, what do you need to believe? Okay, so we'll start off here, but then I'm, I'm going to keep moving up. Finally, to the 10th plague, where it's like, okay, this is, this is uh, the, I guess the only way you'll believe, Pharaoh, is through grief, is through pain, is through suffering. And so that's what God uses to get Pharaoh's attention and finally release the people of, uh, of uh, uh, the Israelites from Egypt. We looked at this one passage and we kind of came back to this because in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, Jesus says something kind of interesting. He says, um, uh, and he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Right? We looked at the NIV and the ESV. It says, do not stumble or offended on account of me. And I think it's so fascinating that Jesus would say that about himself. Like Jesus is saying, like, like, blessed are they who, who kind of get me, who are not offended by me, who are not, you know, it's like, oh, okay. And, and so what if, what if the miraculous isn't simply about, um, you know, God kind of appeasing our doubts and our skepticism, but what if it's a bit more than that? Uh, maybe another way of understanding this phrase might be, blessed are those who aren't disappointed when God doesn't act or behave in the ways we think he should. Because that's actually what it kind of comes down to a little bit, is that when we talk about God, when we talk about God's power, and we're going to look at that this morning a little bit, is we say to ourselves, well, if God could do anything, then Lotto 649 shouldn't be too difficult, right? If God could do anything, then, you know, that girl or that guy or this mark or that job or, you know, this acne, well, whatever it would be, right? Like, like, that should be pretty simple. And it's like, okay, it doesn't really work that way. Before we jump off, we're going to take a look at uh, J.R. Tolkien. And, of course, um, you know, we saw that, uh, that scene from The Lord of the Rings. It's called The Council of Elrond. And so what's interesting about that scene, and for, you know, the two of you in this room who perhaps haven't seen the movie, and if you haven't seen the movie, we cannot hang out, just to be clear about that, okay? Um, and you're like, I don't want to hang out with you anyways. You're weird. Okay, so anyways, so J.R. Tolkien writes The uh, Lord of the Rings, and the three books are really... Uh, if you look at it in, in a metaphorical sense, what you're really seeing is humanity's uh, wrestling with power. And what is interesting about Tolkien is that Tolkien had a very dim view of humanity. 
He didn't trust people. And so in one of his letters, letter to Christopher Tolkien, uh, uh, Jared Tolkien says this. Anyway, the proper study of man is anything but man. And the most improper job of any man, even saints, who at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all, those who seek the opportunity. What's interesting is Tolkien didn't really trust people. He didn't really think that humanity was, uh, was, um, could handle power properly. And remember, Tolkien is coming out of World War II. Right? Like C.S. Lewis. Right? So when C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are, are kind of creating these worlds, the World War II is in the back of their minds. It's, it's, it's kind of like these are, these, are, these are how they are thinking about the world. And, and what they kind of come away from it, and for Tolkien especially, is the cynicism of humanity and power. Right? And so the Lord of the Rings and, and the one ring represents this idea of power and how do we grasp a hold of it. But what's interesting is in the Lord of the Rings, there is something called a ring wraith. And again, we're going to geek out a little bit here, so uh, please forgive me. But a ring wraith was, so there are these rings in the Lord of the Rings that are given out to each species, right? There's elves, there's men, uh, there's, um, there's uh, dwarves, and, and, and so on. And so rings are given to each of the species, right? So there's nine rings given to men. And these rings, instead of giving them power, actually corrupt them, and they become ring wraiths. In other words, they're bound to the ring. Now, the whole point of this and is to say that what is interesting about Tolkien is of all the species, the, the dwarves and the elves, they at least are able to resist the evil, but human beings, they just give into it right away. Like they, just, they are corrupted by it completely. And uh, a Tolkien expert by the name of Dr. Thomas Shipley says this, has said that the ring race are Tolkien's most original and distinctive image of evil, in part because they represent the danger that power poses in the hands of anyone, even oneself. Shipley calls this process by which ordinary people who begin with good intentions end up becoming corrupted and twisted as they acquire power, the wraithing process. Now, what is interesting, what he's saying there is that this idea of the ring rates is was Tolkien's way of saying, you know what, everybody wants power. Like, if, if, like right now, we are in the midst of elections, and whether it's in England or whether it's America or whether it's right now, we are looking at the world and saying, like, what, what really is an election? An election is who do I trust to boss me around? And, and sometimes we kind of walk away going... I don't, I don't trust anybody. <laughs> like, like I, don't, I, I don't trust anybody on, right now. Like, I don't know who to trust, right? Because whenever we elect a government, what we're really saying is, I'm going to hand you power, I'm going to hand you resources, and I'm hoping that you will do what is best, right? But the fact is, and, and again, I don't care what political party you choose. I don't care who you think is best. None of that really matters to me. But what is interesting to me is that no matter who we choose, whatever, whatever party gets in, in, in power... Power has a way of kind of doing something. So there's a phrase that says, you know, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I actually don't think that phrase is correct. There's another way of looking at the phrase, and it's, it's this way. Power attracts the corruptible. Like those people who want power seem to be, they want it for a reason. And 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 doesn't matter what government, doesn't matter who it is, like power has a way of kind of, you know, like of twisting people around. And what Dr. Shippey is saying is that what Tolkien believed was is that power had this way of saying, you know, if you, you say to yourself, if, if, I, if I could make decisions, if I had all power, well, this is what I would do. And you think, well, this is whatever you would want me to do. Oh, no. Just have a conversation with the person next to you. It's like, hey, if I had power, I'd do this. Like, what? Why would you do that? It's like, right? It's like, oh, well, because this would be best for everyone. No one would be best for me. Right? This is the difficulty with power. And so what we find here is that 
Tolkien sets up this story of, of the Lord of the Rings about this one ring. And of course, uh, Boromir, the guy that has a speech there, says, you know, like, hey, give me the ring and I'll use it to defeat the enemy. Which is great. And that's what everybody kind of believes. But what, you know, Aragorn and what Gandalf is trying to say is that, well, you can defeat the enemy, but then you become the enemy. Because power will corrupt you. We want it for the best of intentions. We think we know how to use it, but we, we really don't. And I want to kind of say something else about Tolkien a little bit. And I want to say thanks to uh, Brian for pointing out this article to me. Gerald Tolkien wrote a story, uh, an article called On Fairy Stories. And it was Tolkien's way of saying, okay, what is it about this genre of writing that can help us as Christ followers? Because remember, Tolkien was a Christian. And so what is this, uh, this, this genre of writing? How does it help us to understand a little bit about God and, and the creation story? And so just an excerpt from the essays is this. I would venture to say that, the, that approaching the Christian story from this direction, i.e. fantasy, it has long been a feeling, a joyous feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt making creature men in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiar, uh, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among these marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. Now, I'll explain what that word means. In and in moment. Well, it's at the bottom there, so you can read it. But um, what Tolkien is saying is interesting. He says, like, you know what? And I think it's so interesting that some of the, you know, some, some of, uh, uh, like, like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien both thought, uh, you know, the best way to kind of convey the Christian story to those who perhaps may not be Christians themselves were, like, this allegory, right? Whether it's Aslan or it's Gandalf, right? Well, however, that this, 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 this genre of writing was a really great way of kind of saying, hey, this is what it is. And the Bible does the same thing, just so you know, right? Like, there's something called apocalyptic literature. And the book of Revelations is, is one of those pieces of literature where it's using fantasy and images to con kind of convey, right? There's this, there's this one, I think it's Revelations chapter 10, where it's the Christmas story, but in the weirdest sense, it's, this woman is going to give birth and this dragon is waiting to eat the child that, that emerges from the woman's womb. It's like, what way, like this? Like, I don't know, like, how, what, what is God doing here? He's using imagery to kind of convey a deeper truth. And so what Tolkien was saying is that one of the reasons why he uses this genre of teaching was, of writing was, because it, it conveys the, 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 the fantastical nature of the gospel story. Now, just to be clear here, Tolkien didn't believe the Bible to be like, a, like, like an allegory. He, he believed it to be true. But he says, like, even in this truth, there's a way of saying this way of, of kind of describing it to everybody else was uh, uh, using fantasy, using other kind of language. Eucatastrophe is kind of interesting. He kind of creates this word and says this. A eucatastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. So it's kind of like this idea of this emotion of, like, you know, like, like of, of victory, but there's a great cost to the victory, which is how Tolkien kind of thought of salvation. Right, like as, as a Christ follower in this world today that we are trying, we are, we are working towards what God would have for us, but there's also a cost to it. And our lives can be a eucatastrophe in the sense that we are trying to be transformed and changed, but there's also pain and suffering in that as well too. So that's kind of what we, what we, wanna, we wanna jump off with. So in this series, we've been asking different questions because again, we are trying to wrap our minds around the supernatural. We're trying to wrap our minds around what is this other world? And actually, next, next Sunday, we're going to kind of pierce into this realm of the other world and talk about 
angels and demons, and we're gonna have to have, we're gonna have to see how the Bible describes this other world, so we can kind of have our have a point of context for it. So we've been asking questions about this world. So the first thing we started off with in week one, we asked that we said this: we and this by we mean the church and Christians. We have forgotten what we are and who we belong to. Remember, I said to you, we are flesh wrapped souls, right? We are not. We are not flesh that has a soul. We are souls that are wrapped in flesh. Now, the reason it's a different way of thinking is because there's a part of us, a piece of us, that is eternal. Right? We have a beginning point, but from that beginning point, we will continue on forever. And so that's the part that we need to really think about. That's the part that we need to understand. And the flesh part, this is why the Bible talks about flesh and the desires of the flesh and all these things. Like, this is temporary. And I know, you know, 80, 70, 100, 90 years, it doesn't seem temporary. But in, in, compared to eternity, it is very temporary. And so what is interesting is we have forgotten what we are and who, and who, who we represent. The next question we've been asking ourselves is, does the miraculous create faith? Right? We've been asking ourselves this question about, you know, if, 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 if God would just prove to me he existed, I would believe. And again, we, we said to that, like, there is no proof that's enough for you if you don't have that openness to believe. And we finally asked, is how much proof or evidence do you need? Like, again, what is the category? What's the percentage? If I had 60% proof, then I would believe. If I had 90% proof, and we talked about this, there is no 100% proof. But it's like, you know, what is the percentages of proof that we need? So the question we want to ask this morning is this one. If you had access or control over the supernatural, what would you do with it? When we speak of the supernatural, the miraculous, what we are really trying to grasp is power. See, we talk about the supernatural, we're talking about the miraculous, and we see it in the scriptures, and it does happen today. I'm not, it, like, I'm not saying to you it doesn't happen today. But it doesn't happen with a frequency that perhaps we may like or may not happen in, 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 in the context that we think it should. But the question we always have to ask ourselves is, if you had access to the supernatural, if you could convince God just to kind of, and please forgive me how this, this phrasing sounds, but if you could convince God to do whatever you said, what would you do with it? Like, like how would you change the world? How would you change culture? How would you change humanity if you had access to God's power? Right? And the only analogy that I can think that even comes close to this, again, as I kind of hinted at it, is winning the lottery. What's interesting about winning the lottery, and, and I was going to kind of go down a rabbit hole with this one, but what, winning the lottery is this, is, this, is this dream that our culture has. That one day you, you get the winning numbers and all of a sudden you go from, you know, eating ramen to, you know, eating deluxe ramen. I don't know. Uh, right? Whatever it would be, right? But you, 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 your, your life changes. And all of a sudden you go from having very little money to having more money than you know what to do with. Well, what is interesting about that is that when, when they have done studies, and they have done quite a few studies on lottery winners, what is interesting about that is, is that people actually have found that if you win over a certain amount of money, so it's, I, think, I, think it's, I think the study says over $1.5 million, that when they check in five years later, after these people have won over 1.5, so it could be 1.5, 10s, 20, whatever it would be, after five years of checking in with these lottery winners, they find a couple of things. They find one thing is a heightened degree of depression. They find a greater amount of debt, which is like, what? Wait, how do you have more debt when you have all, all that money? They find isolation. Um, there's a, the, the maker of Minecraft, um, I can't remember his name, but uh, he, sold, he sold his company for a, a couple of billion dollars or just, just, just an obscene amount of money. 
And a couple years ago, he tweeted out how lonely he was. Like, like, like he created this game and people loved it and he sold it off and got this tons of money. And he tweets out like how lonely he is. You're a billionaire. Bye, friends. I don't know. Like, like there's got to be a place I'd hang out with you if you at all. I don't know. Um, but he's, he tweets out how, how depressed he was, how lonely he was. And at one point in time, people thought he might have been suicidal. And again, this guy just got like 1.5 billion or, or some uh, obscene amount number like that for this video game. He doesn't ever have to work again. Him, his kids, his grandkids, like, like I don't know how many generations out you can go from it, will never have to work again. But the thing that he kept saying is that I'm depressed. I'm lonely. I'm isolated. I don't know who to trust anymore because people now see me as, as like, but the thing that you wanted, the thing that you wanted the most, now you have it. Now what are you going to do with it? And of course, other stories of, of addictions, of, of getting a sports car and crashing it. Uh, once they said that, and people who win a certain amount of money, like, they, like the family members seem to have like just skyrocketed addictions. Alcoholism, drug use, it's like... So the thing that you think that you want, the thing you think you need, turns out to actually not be the thing that you actually need. And so we're going to ask a question this morning about this. And so we're going to take a look at two stories in the Old Testament where this question was posed to the person. We're going to ask this question, we're going to take a look at two stories in the Old Testament, and... Because I, 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 I want to make sure I teach this in context, uh, I'm going to give you a little background to both of these stories so you can understand what's happening here. Sometimes what we do in the Bible is we, get, we, we know how the story ends. Right, right? We know what's going to happen to the person, but if you, can, if you can just do what Barney tells you to do and use your imagination, and they just don't fast forward and just live in the moment so that you can kind of experience what the person experienced. So the first one, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Joshua. We're going to take a look of a, of a moment in time of Joshua's life and, uh, and kind of get a hold of, of what Joshua's doing. So the, 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 the encounter I want to give to you is in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now, and I'm going to give you context this for a second, but let me just read this out for you. Let me just lay, uh, set the scene in this way. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Which, again, person with a weapon in their hand? It's a great question. In verse 14, neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And in the, in the NIV, it says this. Joshua says to him, are you for us or our enemies? And the response is neither. Now, just so you know, as far as responses go, this one kind of sucks. Right? Because, like, you have to remember, Joshua is standing in front of God in this moment. Right? In the Old Testament, we call this a Christophany, and I'll show you why a little bit more in a second. And so, he's standing before uh, what we believe is what's called a Christophany. and That's the idea of Jesus in the Old Testament appearing at certain times. And so, Joshua comes up to this person and says, like, are you for me, or are you for my enemy? And the response this person gives is, Neither. Now, let me unpack here what's going on, because this is where you need some context, right? The people of Israel, for the last 40-plus years, and by plus, we don't know the, the plagues and all that. We don't know how long that took there. But so, 40-plus years, they've been hearing from Yahweh, right, this, this, this God that they're rediscovering uh, after coming out of Egypt. They, they've been hearing from God that God is going to take them from Egypt to this new place. And this new place is their spiritual inheritance, Right? This is why even today, like in, in Israel, there is this, like the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people of Israel, the, there is an inheritance of this. It's not just geography. It's not like, oh, this is a good place of land. I'm going to live here. 
There is this spiritual kind of lineage that says, no, no, this was given to us by God. That's the reason why we will, we will fight to, con- to keep it because this is what God has given to us. And so we see this, right? And so when Joshua stands before this, this person, right? Jericho is right there. Now, remember, don't fast forward here. Don't go, oh, Joshua, can't. no, don't fast forward. Joshua has just been with the people who've been wandering around the desert for 40 years. And remember, the reason why they're wandering the desert is so the, is so the generation will die. This is what God says. Because you do not believe, because you didn't trust me, that you will not enter the promised land until this generation is removed. So for 40 years, now I don't know about you, but maybe I'm like a, like a, like a, like a 12-year-old looking at an old person like, already because like i, I want to get i want to get to uh, that's a horrible thing to say i know but uh no one tweet that um but it's like like you're wandering the desert till a generation is removed and joshua now becomes the leader of this next generation to go into the promised land right and remember they walk across the jordan river and for the second time god stops the water so they can walk across on dry land and so they come and they see jericho Right? And there it is. And we know the description of Jericho. It's this, it's this wall city. It's enormous. Right? And, and, and for a nomadic people with no siege engines, with no kind of uh, military apparatus, conquering this city is basically we're going to surround it and starve you out. And I don't know how long that's going to take. We don't know how long the grain stores are. We don't even know what happened there. So that's the best we've got. Because we, we don't have the ability to break these walls down. So Joshua comes and, and, and he sees this person and he says, are you for us or for your enemies? But remember, in Joshua's mind, he thinks he knows the answer because God has given us Jericho. God has given us this land. And instead, the response is, no, 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 I'm not for either of you. Now, what is interesting here is, is Joshua uh, wants God and his power on his side. But see, God needs to remind Joshua that he wants Joshua with him. So the book of Joshua, when you study it in, in, in the context of the Old Testament, it's what's called the book of conquest, right? So the people of Israel finally get to the promised land. But remember, the promised land is not empty. There are people who are living there. And just remember, we've talked about this before. The Canaanite religion was a vicious, vicious religion. And we've talked about that before, so I'm not going to kind of go back into it. So what God said to the Israelites, you need to empty this land so you can occupy it. And they actually disobeyed God. They didn't actually quite empty it. They started off, they head, they head down, they work their way up, but about three quarters of the way up, they stop. Because they just get exhausted, and, and they just like, okay, we're done. So they actually don't empty the land of the people that are supposed to be out of it. And so what's interesting here is Joshua goes to God and says, hey, you're for us, right? And what God needs to let Joshua know at the very beginning of this campaign, and again, Joshua doesn't know the future. He doesn't know what's about to happen. Remember, live in the moment. Don't go past this. He wants God on his side because, you know, he's been told by God that God is on his side. But see, this conversation with, with, with God is very important because God needs to remind Joshua, it's not your side or their side. There's only one side in this, and that's my side. So rather than asking Joshua, responding to Joshua, are you for us or for our enemies? If God says, I'm for you, then Joshua feels, well, I can do whatever I want. And if, 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 uh, jo- if he says it's for your enemies, and I was like, well, what are we doing here then? So God needs to reorient Joshua to understand something about his power. Because, again, only, Jericho is only going to be taken by God's power. 
It's not going to be taken by the people. They don't have the means at this point in time. They are not an elite uh, military force at this point. They're nomads. And when they emerge out of the desert, we don't even know what kind of weapons they have. Right? Like, you're going to war, and, and maybe, like, a couple of dozen you have swords. That's a really bad war. You know? And you are, you are going to a, a people where are established, they have a military, like, they have all of this, and you're like nomads. So whatever's going to happen at the beginning of the campaign of conquest, God has to intervene. Because if he does not, you will not win. And this will be the shortest campaign in history. In the book of Job, and I'm going to come back at the very end to kind of reference the book of Job. One of these days, I'm going to do a sermon series on the book of Job, because the book of Job is fascinating. On Friday night, I was at the University of Guelph, uh, speaking to the Power to Change group there. And uh, I referenced, we were talking about prayer and, uh, and intercessory prayer. That was what they asked me to speak on. But of course, um, like at the end, I want to, if Amy has any questions like we do here. And so I had like, you know, uh, about a dozen students who wanted to ask me and have some questions about it. Um, and so I referenced the book of Job. And like I said to the, the students, the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. We believe the book of Job was written after Genesis chapter 3, uh, before Genesis chapter 4, we think approximately, but it's the oldest book in the Bible, which means that the book of Job is, 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 is as raw as you can get in regards to a conversation with God. Now, in Job chapter 40, right, you have this really interesting conversation because God, so for, for the first like 30 Six chapters of the book of Job. It's Job and his friends and his horrible wife uh, having a conversation about suffering. Right? And, and so, like, Job is sitting there and everything has been taken from him. Right? Everything's been taken. His health, his wealth, his family, his status. Everything's been taken from him. And he's sitting in ashes and he's, he is wrestling with suffering. Which, again, we can all kind of understand that with Job, Right? And his friends are giving a response. One of them actually gives a very interesting response, but they're all having a different conversation. His wife is like, just curse God and die because I don't know what you've done. Uh, and Job, you know, I thought I, I, I knew what your life has. Maybe I need to look at your internet history. I don't know what is going on here, Job. Like, like ooh, a little too close there. Sorry. Um, and so with Job, it's kind of like, oh, like how, do I, how do I wrap my mind around what's going on? And finally, in around verse 36, uh, chapter 36, 37, Job finally kind of asks God the question. It's a question we all ask. And to paraphrase, it's why me? Now, look at God's response. And just so you know, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling, but this is horrible, right? Like, this is, like, this is horrible. Look at, look, look at the response. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And I said, so we were talking at, on Friday night at University of Guelph over prayer. And I said to you that, you know, in, 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 verse, in chapter 37, it says that God's voice comes out of a storm. Like, if you think your life is terrible at this point in time, right, imagine having your prayer time with God where he actually responds. I don't know about you, but I prefer the silence. Because when God responds, it is, it is like, God's like, who do you think you are? How much knowledge do you think you have to understand how I, I, I run the world? But again, Job is asking a very honest question because he doesn't know. He doesn't know that his life has been stripped down to the, to the very last element because God and the devil had a wager. And again, it sounds very Shakespearean, right? He doesn't know that. 
He has no idea what is going on. He has no comprehension of the cosmic forces at play. He has none. All he knows is he is suffering. And he says to God, why me? Now look at this. Job promises silence then. Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay, my, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, Job says, you know what? I, I, I don't know how to answer you, Lord. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't know the world. I just know this little small little piece of it. And it's almost as if God is saying to Job, and again, the only good news about the book of Job is that, you know, you know spoiler alert, he restores everything. Right, so you know, and, and Job lives to a, a ripe old age, and then God, you know, curses his his friends for for not being a good friend in regards to what what they said to him. But in this moment, God does something very interesting to Job. Rather than saying to Job, like Job, like like God could have said, Job, I'm so sorry, you don't understand. The reason this is all happening to you is because I love you and I believe in you. How about a new camel, Lord? How about some more grandkids? Like, I think, I'm, I'm glad that you love me and believe in me, but is this suffering all necessary? Right? Like, is this suffering really all necessary? And so what Job is trying to, is Job's having a conversation with God. And again, just go back and read through Job chapter 37, 38, 39, 40, 41. Like, these chapters are God kind of unrolling his resume to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I flung the stars into the, night, into the sky? Like again, he's using metaphor, but he's basically saying, God, he's, he's saying, Job, I'm infinite. You're finite. How does a finite being wrap their mind around the infinite? And Job backpedals. is like, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So scenario number one is this idea of like, we think we know how God will respond. We think we know that God is on our side. But again, we actually have to rethink that because it's not about sides. It's not about our side, their side. It's about what God wants to do. Scenario number two, it takes a little bit more of a background because I'm, I'm going to arrive to where I need to arrive, and you know the story, but I need you to understand the background to the story. So in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 1, it says this. So on January 15th, during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon led his entire army against Jerusalem. Here's what you need to know about Babylon at the time. Babylon was the predominant uh, military force in the known world at the time. There was no other nation that could even come close to, uh, to dethroning the Babylonians. And so when, in 2 uh, Kings 25, it says that he led his entire army against Jerusalem. I try to find in commentators how big would that have been? Because I'm trying to figure out like what it would have looked like. And one commentator said this, that the Babylonian army was so big that it could surround Jerusalem four times. That's big. And that's basically saying, okay, you are vastly outnumbered by who and what we are. And look at verses 8 and 9. On August 14th of that year, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard and an official of the Babylonian king, arrived in Jerusalem. He burned down the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city. This is an absolute devastation to Jerusalem. It is, like Jerusalem is the, the center of Israel. And so this person comes in and he just destroys everything. 
And the reason why, now just note something here, okay? The reason why he mentions the temple first, the writer mentions the temple first, a temple was a representation of their God, their deity. If you can destroy the temple in their minds in pagan culture, you can destroy the deity. So understand something. This was God's plan, and I'm show you why in a second, for Israel because their disobedience. But God's also bringing shame to himself because he's allowing foreigners to come in to destroy what was supposed to be his place of worship. So God is, he, like, you know, he, he's, he is allowing this to take place and bringing disgrace to his name because Israel is, the, the deity of Israel is Yahweh. Well, Yahweh, according to the pagan culture, has just been defeated by the Babylonians. Now watch this in verse 11 and 12. Then uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, look, took as exiles the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. But the captain of the guard allowed some of the poorest people to stay behind to care for the vineyards and fields. In other words, and the reason why they add this note there is because they want the, people, the reader to know that, 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 that the Babylonians didn't want all of the, um, the produce to go to waste. So they left the poorest there to take care of it and, and, and have it. Now, why does this happen? Why does God allow the Babylonians to do this? See, we know the story. And again, some of you are already fast-forwarding in your head. You know the story, but you don't know why. And to understand why, you have to go to the prophet Jeremiah. He's in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 22 to 3. It says this. Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people in Judah and Jerusalem, For the past 23 years... From the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until now, the Lord has been giving me his messages. I have faithfully passed them on to you, but you have not listened. Now, if I was to say to you, like, how long should God wait for you to listen to him? I, six months? A year? Two years? Five years? Ten years? I'm going to say... And I'm going to be bold enough to say this. I'm going to say 23 years is plenty of time. Plenty of time for the people to actually listen to the prophet Jeremiah. And not just Jeremiah. There's other prophets as well too. They keep coming to Israel and keep saying to them, listen, stop indulging in these pagan practices. Stop indulging in these behaviors. Stop. And again, the list goes on and on and on what they've done. In verse 4. Again and again, the Lord has sent you his servants, the prophets, but you have not listened or even paid attention. Verse 8 to 9. And now the Lord of heaven's armies. Remember that phrase? Goes back in Jeremy. Okay, good. Um, it says, because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Babylon was God's punishment to Israel for disobeying him for 23 years. For 23 years, God has sent prophet after prophet, person after person to Israel to say, stop, just stop. And for 23 years, like, nah, God doesn't know. God doesn't care. God doesn't listen. God's distant. He's, you know, he's in, he's in the galaxy somewhere, you know, watching a black hole or something. I don't know, right? But he doesn't know. And for 23 years, God's like, listen, stop, stop. Stop enslaving. Stop um, violating the poor. Just stop. And at, at the end of it, God's like, okay, here's the deal. You have disobeyed me now for 23 years. I'm going to use this pagan nation and they're going to come in and they're going to teach you a lesson. But just so you know, I sacrificed my own reputation by doing this as well. 
I sacrificed my own reputation in the globe of, uh, with the Babylonians by this as well. Now, of course, you know the rest of the story, right? Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. What the Babylonians were trying to do with Jerusalem wasn't just about destroying it. It was about reorient, re- reorientating it. And so in Daniel chapter 1, verse one, uh, 4, it says this. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. See, it wasn't enough for Nebuchadnezzar to have a military victory. He wanted to change the culture. He wanted to make Babylon part two. So he wanted to take all these young men who were captured in this, and these are, these are the elite, and he wanted to change them. He wanted to make them Babylonian. Look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. So you know the story, right? He, he erects his statue, his golden statue, and at, at a worship service, um, he says, okay, everyone has to worship it. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped God, the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now let's go to the part of the story that I want you to take a look at. Verses 16 to 18 of that same chapter, right? You know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story, right? But what you have to remember, don't go past this. Remember, I told you you have to live in the moment here. Don't go to the end of the story. Go in this moment here. These three, these three young men are standing up and they're facing off the most powerful human being on the planet, the king. But have to understand something. In the back of their mind, they know that for 23 years, the people that they have been a part of, and maybe even they, they themselves, have disobeyed God. Have you ever been a part of your life where something bad happens to you, but you think to yourself, I deserve it? I, I just, I deserve it? Because of my behavior, my thought life, my actions, whatever it would be. And so you say to yourself, I deserve this because of what I've done. When I think about these three young men, I wonder in my back of my mind, if, I, if, if they're thinking to themselves, we actually deserve this. So we're not going to bow down, but our lives are about to be taken. God did not stand up for Jerusalem. He did not do anything miraculous to kill them. And they've been dragged hundreds of miles from their home now to a foreign pagan city. And they were in the midst of this. And God hasn't showed up yet. God hasn't done anything miraculous at this point in time. Now look what they say here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Pause. That's a great statement, eh? Because we say it all the time. The God that I serve can provide the money that I need. The God that I serve can take away the sickness that I have. The God that I serve can restore this relationship. The God that I can serve can somehow change my external circumstances to align itself to the way I think it should be. But now let's go on. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't, we want you to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. See, this is the part that we forget about these three young men, right? Because we go, we go, we fast forward. We go, oh yeah, they go in, and, and Jesus, and we have a Christophany. Yeah, it's good. God saves them. They didn't know that. They didn't know that, but they didn't care. Because they didn't know whether God was going to save them. As a matter of fact, my, my supposition, <clears throat> and again, just my opinion, I don't think they thought God would save them. For 23 years, God has spoken to them. For 23 years, God has been saying to them, repent, change, turn, come back to me. 
And for 23 years, they're like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I wonder if they stand before the king and they finally get it. They don't know whether God's going to save them. They don't know what's going to happen. Because up to this point in time, nothing miraculous has happened in their lives. They haven't seen the power of God defend Jerusalem. They saw the temple of God destroyed by pagans. They saw the Jerusalem that they, they, they've lived in for, most, for all of their lives destroyed by a pagan nation. I believe they're standing before the king and they're, they've just uttered their death sentence. And they say to the king, our God can save us. Our God can change us. Our God can do anything. He's infinite of power. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve you and we're not going to serve your pagan gods. If, if my life is required at this moment in time, we'll stay, tr we'll stay, uh, stay true to Yahweh. Two encounters with God's power. I'm going to kind of just pull out some, uh, some lessons from this. The first one, the first scenario teaches us that, the pow that power is not ours to wield. I think to myself all the time, if I had God's power, this is what I would do. And unfortunately, I wish I could say to you how, how spiritual I am that I want to do good things with it. But instead, I just want to smack some people around with it, actually. Uh, I, I would like, hey, you know what? God, that person who just really has a way of being, you know, mean to you and yourself. Yeah, let's, uh, let's give them two heads. Uh, or how about a tail? Or uh, I don't know, like, like whatever scenario you want to, you know, like I have found that when I think about if I had access to God's power, I kind of want to use it to kind of, you know, be God's justice in the world. Wouldn't that be great? If I could just say, hey, that person who claims to be a Christian or that person who's attacking Christians, well, they're gone. They're, and, and, and not just gone. I'm going to get a meteor. Like, I want to do it in a spectacular fashion. I'm not just going to, like, you know, I don't want them just, like, not wake up. I want, like, a meteor, like, boom, ah, right? You know, and, and like, I, I want something kind of amazing. And I just want you to know, that as you are judging me right now, um, you are all the same way. Oftentimes when we think of God's power, what we're really thinking about is how do we realign the world the way we want it to be? So the first lesson teaches us that God's power isn't for us to, to wield. It's not, it's, it's not for us. We are not, we are, A, we're not worthy. But B, we just don't have the knowledge and wisdom to understand it. But the second part, though, the second teaches us that the outcome is God's. The most important thing is both are a test. See, when you ask or pray for God's intervention and he doesn't respond, how do you respond? And that's the interesting thing that I've thought about myself. It's like, Lord, I want you to do this. And some of the, some of the questions, again, I'm not... I'm not some sort of maniac. Like, some of the things are actually good, you know? Like, I want to restore the environment. I'd like our planet to be healthy again. That'd be fantastic, right? Maybe an alternative form of energy that's, you know, clean. And that would be great, wouldn't it? Some of the things that I want to pray for, some things I would love to see happen, some intervention, be, these are good things. And God's like, if I don't do it, am I still God to you? And that's actually a really great question. Am I only your God because of what you get from me? Or am I your God because I am God? You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's what we call the chapter of faith, and it's amazing, right? And um, in this, what we see here is that 
the writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that they name person after person after person. But there's this line here. It says this. All these people died still believing what God had promised. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. See, one of the problems we think about is, again, we go past the story. We go, oh, we know how this ends. We know, we know the good stuff at the end. But they didn't. And they still remained faithful. And I wonder when we think about God's power, when we think about the supernatural, when we think about the miraculous, I, I wonder if we perhaps forget that whatever the outcome, whatever it is that we think that, we should, that should happen, should be aligned, whatever it is that we want God to do in our lives, and if he doesn't accomplish it or, or do it the way we think he should or even at all, I wonder if God's testing our motives for our following or worshiping of him. I wonder if God's trying to say, do you really love me or do you just want to use me? And that's the part that kind of terrifies me a little bit about myself. Because I have to reorient myself a little bit saying, okay. Uh, I want to, um, two weeks ago, I showed you this uh, quote from Philip Yancey from his book, Disappointment with God. Again, great book. But I, I, I want to kind of just bring it back to memory because I think that what he says is really important. He says this, no matter how we rationalize, God will sometimes seem unfair from the perspective of a person trapped in time. Only at the end of time, after we've attained God's level of viewing, after every evil has been punished or forgiven, every Ill illness healed, and that the entire universe restored, only then will fairness reign. Then we will understand what role is played by evil and by the fall, and by natural law in an unfair event like the death of a child. Until then, we will not know and can only trust in a God who does know. See, I'd say to you, Many of us pray and ask God to intervene, to do things. And whether it's us being wronged, whether it's, it's the trajectory of our lives, whether it's sin we wrestle with, whatever it would be, I would say to you that we are trapped in time. And because we are trapped in time, we don't know. And this is the, this is the difficult part, right? Is that we want to, as much as possible, step into the shoes of God. When someone comes to me and says, Pastor, why did this happen? I would love to give you a reason and say, well, in four years from now, you'll see why. And you'll see how God restores. And you'll see, I would love to have that answer. And said, the only answer I have is, this world is infected and affected by sin. And not necessarily your sin, but maybe the sin of others or just sin in general. The fall had implications that are global and supernatural. And I can't, I can't even begin to quantify for you just how it, hit, how it will hit or hurt you. And sometimes I think we as Christians have done a great disservice to ourselves, to those around us, by saying, oh, no, no, everything's for a reason. Everything has a purpose. And that may be true, but in the moment of suffering, in the moment of pain, you don't know. And it certainly doesn't feel like it. It certainly doesn't feel like it. Let me close. Remember I told you I'm going to come back to the book of Job? In Job chapter 26, Job paints a picture of God. And I want to, I want to, I want to close with this picture. Because what I've said to you up to this point in time, that God may not intervene, may not do what you think he's going to do. But that does not dismiss who God is. So I want you to reflect on this. And I don't know if you're a visual learner or an auditory learner, but 
if you could, if, you, if you're willing to, if you could close your eyes and just listen to me read this. I want, I want your imagination to paint a picture of God that perhaps we have forgotten a little bit. Just hear what Job chapter 26, verses 7 to 14 has to say. And, and just as I'm reading it to you, hear the words of Job sitting in dust, trying to wrestle with suffering in his life and in his circumstances. And hear how he still thinks about God at chapter 26. Listen to the words of Job. God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds, and the clouds don't burst with the weight. He covers the face of the moon, shrouding it with his clouds. He created the horizon when he separated the waters. He set the boundary between day and night. The foundations of heaven tremble. They shudder at his rebuke. By his power, the sea grew calm. By his skill, he crushed the great sea monster. His spirit made the heavens beautiful, and his power pierced the gliding serpent. These are just the beginning of all that he does, merely a whisper of his power. Who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? Just think about that for a moment. A man suffering in ways we can't even imagine. Somebody trying to wrestle with the purposes and the plan of God. And yet this is what he says about his God. I don't know about God's power. I don't have secret words for you to pray to make God answer your prayers. I don't. And I don't know why we wrestle with what we do. I don't know why we, are, we have things within us or outside of us that, um, that we can't quite comprehend. But sometimes it's helpful for me to not look at a God based upon outcome but based upon who God is. And I think if Job, and I've never been, I've never experienced what Job has experienced, but if this guy in this circumstance can still say this about God, then perhaps I can too. Let's bow our heads and pray. At UCC, we, uh, we do things a little differently here. We, uh, we have the sermon in the middle of the service so that we allow reflection time um, afterwards as well. I want you to know something that when I was preparing this sermon, the Lord really kind of convicted me and spoke to me as well. As a pastor, um, it's easy for me to think of how God should make UCC happen or what God should happen or, or resources or all these type of things and it's like God was saying to me as a pastor, it's like, you have to trust me. You have to remember who I am. Regardless of, of what you think should happen in your know, church or in the community, you just have to trust me. And for the rest of you here this morning, I don't know the circumstances you find yourself in. I don't know what you wrestle with. I don't know what you struggle with. I don't. But sometimes our struggles can define God for us. Our pain and our suffering can define who God is and in some ways limit that same God for us. There are things that we want, things we desire, things we hope or wish would happen, and they don't. And we don't know what to do with that, and I confess to you, I don't either. But just like Job, I have to kind of go back and remember 
God is infinite. He is loving. He is compassionate. And whatever happens in my life, in this life, it's not the final word. Whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying before the king, thinking they're about to die. Whether it's Joshua before the angel of the Lord, being reminded that God's power is God's, not ours. I too come to God and say, Lord, I don't know, I don't understand, but I, 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 I worship you for who you are. I don't let my pain define who you are. I don't let my ignorance define who you are. You are God. You are great, you are mighty, you are powerful. I love the imagery that Job uses to paint the picture of who God is. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that I love. And in his wisdom, in his, in his, his, his way of looking at the world, if I need to go through some dark valleys, if I need to go through some paths of pain, then I, so be it. He is God. I am not. And that's the beginning of my relationship with him. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for each person here, Lord. I pray blessings upon them in Jesus' name. I pray, Holy Spirit, for those who perhaps this morning may feel distant from you because of circumstances within their lives, whether it's pain, whether it's loss, whether it's uncertainty, whether it's direction, provision, health, whatever it be, God, there's so many things even more than that, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning, the takeaway that we would have, the thing that we would remember, that our God is infinite beyond all things. As far as the heavens are from the earth, are his ways from our ways. And we know how we would like to reorient this world because we think we know what's best. But God, I thank you that you truly know what is best because you have a picture that we cannot. We are trapped in time. We are trapped in our small sliver of this world. But God, you are above all things. And in this, I worship you. I sing my praises to you. And sometimes those praises are a mere whisper because of the pain and the hurt I feel. And sometimes they're a shout because of the anger that perhaps might be in me. But Lord, I pray to you and I worship you for who you are. And I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning and perhaps the rest of our lives that we would feel, we would feel this freedom to worship you. Not because of what you've done for us, not because of how you've answered our prayers, not because of the outcomes of our lives. But we worship you for who you are, for what you are. And in that, would be a peace would be a wholeness. Would be the foundation for our journey with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.